you know, you can click on LinkedIn, you can click on the web. There are a gazillion, million, trillion uh, advice sites. Everyone's going to tell you something else. Forget them all. Pick up a bloody sheet of paper. You want to get off the couch? Pick up a sheet of paper and write 12 lines. Every line beginning with our will. Don't write Simon Sinek's bullshit code. Don't write Peter Drucker's code. Don't write anyone else's code but your own. You are the only person who can determine your future. No one else. Hey guys, so today I'm joined on the line from California by Sean Thompson. Sean is in the Hall of Fame when it comes to the world of surfing. Uh, he was an integral part of the free ride generation who, along with Australians Wayne Bartholomew, Mark Richards, Ian Cairns, Peter Townend, and Mark Warren, they rode some of the world's most infamous waves and really created the culture of surfing and the legacy of surfing as it exists today. He has won numerous world championships and has gone on to write several books. But today we're going to talk about one of those books, and it's entitled The Code, The Power of I Will. And if you're listening to me right now, I know that you want to better yourself. You want to better yourself financially. You want to better yourself emotionally, spiritually, and in whichever way you determine is relevant for you. But how do you do that? Well, according to Sean, you need a code, a basic set of principles to live by. Today, Sean and I cover a lot of ground here, but I would like you to pay careful attention to where we discuss the tragic passing of Sean's son, Matthew, and what he has learned in the process of recovery. So without further ado, into the living legend that is Sean Thompson. And we're live. Hey guys, welcome back to yet another cracking edition of curated content from all around the world. Is it content or talent? It's probably talent. And uh, one man who probably needs not much introduction is Sean Thompson. Sean, welcome to the show. Uh, it's great to be on the show. Coming to you from Santa Barbara in California. <laughs> I know, right? Jeez, how far you've come in your in your career. Um, and um, and I've been doing research on you and uh, just what an incredibly inspiring story. I mean, you've really put South Africa on the surfing map back in the 70s, right? Or the 80s, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it was both. Probably both. It was both, yeah. <laughs> Um, so for those of our uh, viewers and listeners out there, or in fact, we're only doing audio this one because of COVID-19, it's ruining the show. But, um, but nonetheless, um, I wanted to, to kind of just take us back to the beginning, right? So where did this, uh, this spark for surfing come from? I know your dad was one of South Africa's uh, most talented swimmers back in the day. Um, but why don't you walk us back to the beginning? Where does the story start? Yes, yeah, so it really starts with uh, with both my mom and dad. They both loved the sea. They loved the ocean. My mom was evacuated from the island of Malta um, in the Second World War. They were very heavily bombed. It was actually the most heavily bombed place in the world. She endured 3,400 air raids. Yeah, she had millions of pounds of bombs dropped on them. They lived in underground shelters. And then uh, once they were evacuated, she ended up, ended up in Durban with her mom off the troop ship. And they walked down the main street, West Street, towards the ocean. And she told me, I've never felt as free as when I've been at the sea. So, you know, she had the, mm. the connection to the sea in her blood. And uh, my father loved the sea as well. He was one of South Africa's top swimmers. He won the South African Junior Championships, I think, when he was 13 years old and was one of the swimmers in, in Natal. And his dream was to, to swimming in the, in the Olympics. And then the Second World War intervened. And he um, volunteered, became a tail gunner in the South African Air Force. And when he came back, he was uh, back in the, in the surf with a group of his mates with a little wooden surfboard. And the Zambezi came up underneath him and hit him so hard, it, it like lifted him into the air. Those are his words from the, the front page of the newspaper. I was lifted clear in the air and nearly bit his arm off and savaged his arm. And in one bite, that was his swimming career gone. Eventually, he was rescued. Everyone scattered, but... But a, a guy called uh, Brian Bilyun, a lifeguard, and Des Colopy, a local Durban guy, they, they swam out. They got him in. And uh, eventually he recovered, but it was a long recovery, and he would never become a, a champion swimmer, but never lost his love for the ocean and taught me how to swim a couple of hundred meters away from where he'd been attacked and taught me how to body surf. He was attacked at South Beach, and he taught me how to swim at, 
at North Beach and swim and surf and and uh, you know my earliest memories of, of going down to the beach with the family, my mom and dad, with a hamper of food. So beach was part of our life, and I just evolved from from swimming to body surfing to riding like a rubber lalo, and then eventually um, onto a board, a little mini board they called it a belly board, and then ultimately onto a um, a full surfboard. And I like to say that I, I competed in my first event when I was 12 years old in the Bay for the Bay Surf Club. And I like to say I was an instant success. I came third in my very first event. There was only three of us <laughs> in the final, but I copped a third. Uh, so uh, I started to do a little bit better than third out of three. And eventually I started to do well in amateur events. And then for my bar mitzvah, which uh, Jews have when they're 13 years old, my, my big present bar mitzvah was a trip to Hawaii with my dad and my stepmom, Ev. And uh, we spent we spent like a month and a half in Hawaii, and I surfed a lot of big waves when I was 14. And ultimately, I came back with that experience, and then uh, and then from there, continued to do better and better until I won my first Gunston 500. That was a massive event for anyone you know, that grew up in South Africa in the 70s and 80s. It was, was a huge event. And I won that for the first time when I was, uh, when I was 17 and went on to win mm. six more Gunston events. And uh, then, uh, and, and then, sort of competing on the world tour, and just had a, had a really wonderful time. Competed for about sixteen years. I was the youngest guy to win. I was the oldest guy to win, and and then retired uh, at the end of the eighties in nineteen ninety. Hmm. I remember the Gunston five hundred. Oh my God, that's bringing back memories here. <laughs> I was born in seventy uh, nine, so I would have probably been watching highlights on like you know. SABC before the days of super sports back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. It went on the way. I mean, the Gunston went on right through for many years, right through into the nineties. Mm. Um, I can't remember when the last time they sponsored the event, but as, uh, as the affiliation with cigarette companies and sport sort of started to wane, mm. uh, you know, the country, the, the, the eventually a new sponsor took over Mr. Price, the sporting good chain, mm-hmm. Uh, took it over, and then ultimately it was mo- moved to Belido Bay, um, and the contest is still actually running. It's the oldest running uh, pro surfing event in the world now. You know, started in '69. My dad was actually one of the guys, along with Max Wetland and Ian McDonald, who started that first event. So it's got a lot of heritage and culture. And I was out there for the for for the uh, for the 50th anniversary uh, at Belido Bay a couple of years ago. It was amazing experience a lot, lot of bittersweet memories mm, i'm sure i'm sure um one of the things that uh, i personally would love to do is actually surf like a wave in hawaii i don't give a shit where it is i'll just say it's pipeline <laughs> <laughs> in fact you know what it would be pipeline on a on a on like a quiet day <laughs> you yeah. know what i mean it would have to be a quiet day yeah, 18 yeah. people have died at pipeline so it would have to be have to be a very quiet day. It's the most dangerous sporting event, the most dangerous sporting location uh, in the world. Maybe Pampelona, where they run with the bulls. Maybe uh, I'm not sure. No, but, that's but easy. Pipeline, it's, it's been a killer. No, I think Pipeline wins. <laughs> I think Pipeline definitely wins. Tell me something. How would you describe Pipeline in the context of a surfer, but then more broadly? if there was an analogy of pipeline in the context of life that people can fully appreciate or maybe, cause you know, it's like, it's hard for me to, and I suppose for many people to fully appreciate what it's actually like back. Oh, and by the way, also today you get pulled into these waves in many respects, right? Back then you just had the power of literally paddling. Um, and so if you're at the top of that wave and you're looking down, you know, walk us through that whole experience. So the reason pipeline uh, is so dangerous is firstly the wave breaks over a very sharp, shallow coral reef. And you have a wave that comes in because Hawaii is a volcanic island. There's no continental shelf. There's no gradual slowing or shoaling of the reef. It comes in from a thousand meters and then it hits this series of reefs that start at about maybe 12 foot deep. They call that Third reef, which is massive waves break on that. And then second reef and first reef, and it gets shallow and shallow until when you ride a wave on first reef, which is the most dangerous part of the reef, the reef 
that's closest into the shore, only, only about 50 yards, about 50 meters out. You'll paddle into this wave, and it hits this reef and stands up absolutely vertically, quickly. The waves break way faster than they do in South Africa when a wave gradually feels that trolling of the bottom and sort of slows down. Pipeline is very sudden, very fast. And when you paddle and try to get over the edge of that wave, you have this very hard northeast trade wind blowing directly up the face into your eyes. So you're half blinded when you're paddling for this wave. The wave hits the reef. It rears up absolutely vertically. And then sometimes you glance over that edge and it's like the black coral of death there. And you see that black coral there and it just fills you with so much fear and trepidation. And when you first start riding it, you really have to get over this fear barrier. It's almost like a palpable barrier of fear. So you paddle and paddle and paddle and you look over that edge for that brief moment. And that moment of indecision can kill you because you can be undecided and then you get trapped in that moment of indecision and then the wave throws you forward over and just smashes you into that coral reef so guys will die two ways they'll either get smashed into the reef knocked unconscious and drown or else on the way down they have an impact with their board and their board knocks them out so once you get knocked out at pipeline the chances of rescue are very very small because there's such a vortex and such a cauldron Um, in what the surface call it the impact zone. It's very, very difficult for a person to get there to help you. In the old days, there was no one out there. There was no no lifeguards. There was no um, people on jet skis. So today, a lot of people are getting saved by jet skis. During a competition, they'll they'll have guys on jet skis waiting to make the rescue, so everyone will be watching for the surfer. But back in our day, you know, you had your little pair of board shorts on and your board, and that was it. So... Not, not as many people are dying today because generally, you know, they, they, they'll get rescued. But today, way more guys are riding the wave. You know, if it was 15 feet, which is about maximum size of pipeline, um, on a good dangerous day back in the 70s or 80s, you know, you might have had 30 or 40 guys in the water. Today, you might have 70 or 80. So there's a lot, of, a lot more competition for that wave, a lot, a lot more surface taking off on, on way more dangerous waves. So... Danger factor is still is still amplified, but that place is the most exciting wave in the world. Yes, there's waves that are a lot bigger today. There's a wave in Tahiti called Chopu, which has killed a, a couple of people. I think two people have died there, which some people say uh, is the equivalent, but it breaks far out. Pipeline, it's sort of this this wave that when the wave hits that that coral reef you can actually feel the impact when you stand on the beach and you're only 25 to 50 meters away from this amazing life and death drama so there's no other wave like it in the world the spectator can stand on the beach watch pipeline really going off and uh, and really experience what it's like to, to be in a life and death situation so um have you seen that wave nazaire in portugal you must have seen it Yes, I, I've never ridden it, but that's also an absolutely terrifying uh, wave. Guys are um, like, guys are attacking that on jet skis and riding enormous waves, 60, 70-foot waves. And sometimes guys are even paddling. And there's a great South African uh, surfer, Grant Twiggy Baker, who's, um, you know, surfs out there with a lot of, a lot of courage um, and a lot of fortitude. Uh, but that wave breaks also far out. And you don't really have that spectator connectivity. Mm. Um, at Pipeline, you come out of a roaring tube and you can hear, you can hear the crowd cheering. Mm. Uh, you can stand on the beach and you can feel the impact um, of that wave. So Nazari is definitely the home, I think, of the biggest, the biggest waves, um, the biggest wave in the world. Um, and it's amazing to see, you know, surfing has evolved. Every year it evolves. Equipment gets better. Guys are riding bigger waves, taking bigger chances. It's, it's great that, you know, that, that I was sort of part of helping build the whole sport, the, helping build the business, um, helping build the whole culture of surfing. And, you know, I feel very proud to have been in it kind of from the early, early stages. Have you been, have you, do you know Laird Hamilton? Yes, I know Laird. Also, it was an, uh, Laird was an amazing uh, big wave rider. was never a competitor, 
but a really amazing big wave, big wave ride, especially uh, introducing the world to the spot called Jaws on on mm. Maui, which is a spot we never knew existed. Uh, you know, that spot was discovered quite a while, a while after I um, retired, and it's amazing now they're having these competitions at Jaws and. Mm. You know what the guys are doing. Um, you know these 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 young guys, uh, Albie Lair, and I mean I saw Grant Twiggy Baggy get an incredible tube ride there um, last year or, or the year before. So it's amazing. The envelope is continually being pushed. Safety equipment now is a very big part of it. Everyone's wearing these inflatable vests. So if they have a terrible wipeout and they get taken down, they can pull the cord, which inflates the vest, which shoots them. Um, to the surface and a little bit different to our day, you know, you'd ride a big wave and like Waimea Bay, which was sort of the Mount Everest of surfing back in the seventies and eighties. And the waves come 17 seconds apart. That's kind of the period of a big wave. So you know that if you take a big wipeout, you've got to be back up on the surface in 17 seconds. Otherwise the next wave is going to come over you while your oxygen's depleted and you're under the water and chances of surviving two waves are not very good. The chance of surviving three waves are pretty much, uh, mm. pretty much nil. But with these inflatable vests, guys get back up to the surface um, really quickly. Training methods are a lot better, guys. A lot of underwater hold down training. I mean, when I was on the two, I was super fit, but I never specifically trained. I mean, I could hold my breath for four and a half minutes. Sure. But it's different if you try to run a hundred meters flat out, which is kind of the same kind of. Um, uh, physical exertion you have from paddling into a big wave and taking that drop and doing the bottom turn and having all that nervous energy and then getting smashed by a wave. And then you try to hold your breath, even trying to hold your breath for 20 seconds at mm. the end of a hundred meter, meter run, you know, you're going to be, be struggling. So today guys are, um, are learning to sort of stay in the moment. They're really learning to be mindful and not panic and, and hold their breath. Uh, and that was always uh, my mantra in surfing really big waves is don't panic, don't panic, don't panic, because that's when you start to lose gas. So, you know, if you're under the water after being thumped by a 25-foot wave, you know, you're consciously thinking, don't panic, don't panic, don't panic, don't panic. And then, you know, you start running out of the gas, and then you boom, you open your eyes, you look for the light, and you, and sometimes you just have to start uh, scrambling and hoping you can get that one breath before the next wave impacts you. Yeah, it's… um. It's, uh, it's uh, there's so much to talk about here. You know, one of the, I was saying how many similarities we, we have, you know, in our own stories. Um, and, uh, we can get into those if you want, but, um, but one of the, the other ones was that, uh, came up in one of the videos I watched and it was the same thing. My mom used to tell me when I was, I lived, I'm from Cape town originally. So I grew up literally on the beach all the time. Um, didn't really do too much surfing. I found the water too freaking cold, but, um, <laughs> but, um, but she always said to me, never turn your back on the sea. And, uh, cause I, I was, a, as a kid, I was swimming in the, in the waves and, um, this way I obviously had my back, you know, I remember my grandparents were sitting there at the time, I think at this, at this, at, in this particular story. And this wave came up from behind me, you know, when you get that swell, it just like totally comes up up on the beach yeah. and it just yeah. took me out. And as a kid, and I just remember being thrown around in this wave and, uh, kind of, you know, got my bearings and I was yeah, very young. I mean, I wasn't even 10, I was like six or something. And, um, or maybe even younger. And then my mom like came, rescued me, so to speak. And then she said to me, don't ever turn your back on the sea. <laughs> and, um, and I, I was like, oh shit. So I must never turn my, I still remember my, with my kids, um, down in Durban, actually, when we went there in December, I said to the same, them also, I was like, don't turn your back on the sea. But the analogy for me was always about the waves. It was never about life. Um, and I think that, um, there's, there's so much more to that statement, um, and it's something that you actually uh, said as well. So I wanted to kind of get into that. What, what, what would you, how would you describe the, the role of the ocean and surfing as in terms of an analogy in life? Like what does the ocean represent for you? Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can't literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Yeah, you know, the ocean was uh, was my passion, and uh, surfing <clears throat> was my passion, and I always felt that there was fundamental lessons that uh, surfing and the sea could teach you about life. I mean, great poets have written amazing poetry about sailing ships and the, the attraction that we all have to the ocean, and people, even if they're not surfers, you see them walk along the beach and they just stand there and look at the ocean and think about their lives and think about where they're going and where they've been, so... It really is is the sort of fundamental force for, for all of us. I mean, 85% of the earth is water, 85 or 75, I'm not sure of the exact statistics. So it, it has this incredible draw um, and power. So after I, uh, I, I retired from surfing um, and I was in the surfing business with my wife, we, we had an apparel brand called Solitude. Uh, a friend of mine... Um, asked me to give something to a group of kids that were coming to this very famous surfing break called Rincon, which is here in, um, in Santa Barbara. It's about 10 miles away from, from where I live, and it was faced with an environmental challenge. And he said, I'm bringing a group of children down the beach. I want you to give them something to inspire them, uh, and we want to see if we can solve this environmental challenge <clears throat> by raising awareness and empowering these kids about the sea, about surfing, about environmentalism. So I wrote this little card, sat down and wrote 12 lines, every line beginning with our will. And I wrote everything, all the most important lessons that surfing had taught me about, about the ocean and about life. Not how to be the best surfer in the world or how to be a top athlete, just simple lessons that, that I had followed. And like you at six years old had remembered what your mom said to you, don't turn your back on the ocean. One of the lines was, I will never turn my back on the ocean. And I like to think that uh, when my father was attacked by the shark, and he actually went to Hawaii to recuperate um, and met the Hawaiian beach boys, and that's certainly like an old Hawaiian beach boy statement, I will, uh, never turn your back on the ocean. Um, and and some say maybe it was uh, was written by Duke Hanamoku. No, no one really knows. It's just part of surfing law and culture. So that was certainly part of it. I will never turn my back on the ocean. But it has a number of different meanings, as do all the 12 metaphors that I wrote on this little card called Surfer's Code. Um, and, and for many people, I think it means, yes, danger. You have to watch the ocean and keep your eyes on it because a big wave can come and sweep you away. But on another level, it might mean that um, the ocean's your love, the ocean's your passion. And no matter what happens to you, whether you get bitten by a shark and your career gets destroyed or you like that wonderful surfer Bethany Hamilton who got her arm bitten off by a shark. She never lost her love for the ocean. She never walked away from it. And and it's important, I think, for all of us is don't walk away from your passion. So on this little card that I wrote and had printed, it turned into a big groundswell. And ultimately, I wrote my first book. And it was an exploration of every single one of the, of the 12 lines that I wrote. I will paddle around the impact zone. I will always paddle back out. I will realize that all surfers are joined by one ocean, which is really in the connectivity. And, and, and that statement in the context of what's happening to the world today with COVID-19 um, is really emblematic of the dichotomy we faced with. Yes, we want to be connected and we want to be together, but we can't be. So we have to sort of vicariously experience that connectivity through our, well, realize that all surfers are joined by one ocean. And, and, you know, humans are social animals, but at this time we can still stay connected, even though we're physically 
uh, disconnected. So the metaphors, the 12 metaphors that I wrote sort of just continually evolve as, as time evolves. And, and I encourage now people all over the world to write their own code and hundreds of thousands of people have done it and are doing it and families do it together. People in prison do it. CEOs of some of the biggest companies in the world do it with their teams. Just spend 20 minutes together, pick out a sheet of paper and write 12 lines. Every line begins with our will. And that's your code. It's not surface code. Surface code is my code. But you write your own code. And it just helps people visualize where they've been, visualize where they're at, and visualize where they're going. And it's a really simple. And a lot of people share it now. They share it in families. They share it in, in, in um, groups at companies. And we, we found, we've done some academic research on it. it. It really helps with company performance, company connectivity. It helps um, employees uh, really connect at a deeply emotional and spiritual level. And, and it's a fun to see how I've gotten, gotten into this uh, field um, over the last sort of 15 years. And actually, I went back to grad school to graduate school to do my master. I did a master of science and leadership because I was fascinated how we all have this power to influence others in a, in a positive way. And I wrote, a, I wrote a new book that was really inspired by, by young people writing their own codes and inspired by a trip I took to, to South Africa working with, with, with underprivileged kids um, at some of the, the poor schools. <clears throat> And the book was called The Code, The Power of Our Will. Uh, and, you know, that book became, like Surface Code, it became successful. But it's a whole new journey uh, I'm on, and I love it. And, and, and for me, you know, I never turned my back on my passion, even after I lost my beautiful son, son Matthew. Um, never lost my love, and, and I've been able to channel that passion into sort of new areas of life that both helped me, when I help others, it helps me heal. And also it helps others help help others too. So you create this sort of circle and cycle of, of virtuosity. And it's and it's brilliant to see young people writing their codes, inmates at prisons writing their codes, and, and these people are inspiring each other and creating this wave and creating this wall of positive emotional contagion. It's pretty cool. I am. Um, I will say that I completely missed that opportunity. I totally should have used that because, <laughs> like, my book is also like, I will persevere. I will this, and and I literally almost exact same sentiment in the final chap in the final kind of summation or conclusion is write your own shit because you know this is just what other inspiring, hardcore, amazing, talented people have used and what I've learned from them. Put it into like a a very simple, practical sort of well, if this, then that. Um, and expressed through this idea of a code because you're 100% correct. Um, and, um, you know, and the other thing I want to get into, like the, the ocean is, is a scary place. Like I lived uh, on yachts for probably three years. So I, I traveled, I crossed the Atlantic. I spent, wow. yeah, I spent a lot of time on the ocean. And um, it's a scary place. It really is. If you don't know what you're doing, it like stuff can go south pretty damn quickly. Kind of like surfing, really. Um, and um, and so then I want to kind of get into what makes the difference between someone who's prepared to surf a big wave versus someone who isn't prepared to even get in the water. Um, and because I think it's 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 quite an important point to land here. You know, if you if we if we're agreeing that the ocean is very much like life. Like on my tattoo, I've got. Um, I don't know if you can see this that thing there it's neptune so um, on my arm because uh, very cool i can see it yeah that's and then there's the the compass so so the ocean for me is the perfect analogy for life right because you you uh, you're always moving the ocean's never still it's always moving it's a it's the only thing that's certain about life is that it that movement prior to COVID-19 was definitely a thing (laughs) Uh, you know but um, but you have to be you have to be your own Neptune. Like you have to be able to control the movement of life because sometimes you're going to get thrown off the wave and sometimes you're going to stick that thing and you're going to catch a barrel. Um, And it's about, you know, the inner game of life that allows you to either paddle out to that big wave or just to say, Hey, 
you know, that coral down there, that view down there is too scary for me. I'm not prepared to deal with that. Um, and so, so how do you like, firstly, in your view, like knowing that we, knowing what we know now, um, what would you say is the difference? Where, where does the spark come from, from someone who's prepared to like, you know, look down at, at the jaws essentially versus someone who's like, uh, the water's too cold? Well, I think firstly, you have to have that deep desire and that purpose. And I like, you know, people say to me, ah, I'm not really sure what my purpose is. I go, well, here's a simple way to find your purpose. Pick out a sheet of paper, spend 20 minutes and write 12 lines. And those lines, every line beginning with, oh, well, that's your purpose. That is, that's your code. That's your value, which is going to drive your ultimate behavior. So you have to have that purpose. You have to have that desire first before anything else. I mean, when I stood up on my first wave at the Bay of Plenty when I was nine years old, I like to think that that's my passion. That's my path. That's my power. That's my purpose. I mean, you, you find it right there and then. And yes, I was lucky. So firstly, you have to have that passion and, 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 and purpose um, and yes, I discovered it early. And out of that, I wanted to just surf as much as I could. And ultimately, competition came into the sport. And then I wanted to compete as much as I could. I wanted to be the best surfer in the world. And I had pictures of Hawaii right above my bed. Um, and I wanted to go and surf the big waves in Hawaii from a, a young age. So I did have that desire and purpose. So, so that is number one. I think then... You have to have that that a discipline and that dedication too. I mean, I was I used to spend more time in the water than anyone else on the planet, not because I wanted to practice to be the best, but because I loved it more. And I know that during my career on the pro tour for six years, that I I spent more time in the in the water than anyone else on the planet. Um, and I like to think that I loved it more. Uh, yes, I didn't win as many world titles as Kelly Slater or, or Mark Richards. But I know that I loved it more. I spent more time in the water and, and my sort of exploration and, you know, the way I, I kind of changed the way waves were written and surfing was all due to, to that love. Yes, the discipline and engagement as well. Um, and then also... I think you have to be creative too. You have to kind of use your imagination to ride that wave before you've ridden it. Um, and I would really, you know, like to to sort of think about surfing. One of the things um, I wrote in my surface code, I'll catch a wave every day, even in my mind. And I like to think that, yes, that's a wonderful metaphor for escaping back to what you love and okay you can't go surfing every day you might have business obligations familial obligations but you can catch a wave in your mind but also it's a way that you can be imaginative and visualize something that hasn't been done before which is the essence of entrepreneurship you know that visualization that thinking out of the box that looking at at at, at current trends looking what's new looking what's uh, what's happening. And, and let me tell you, I live by that. It's not, my card is no bullshit there. Those 12 lines are fundamental to me. And yes, they can help and have helped, you know, thousands and thousands of people. The best help is when you write your own code, but my code helps me. And I'll, every now and then, you know, stuff will happen. I mean, here's my wallet. I carry my code in my wallet. And I can look at this card today and I can see something new in it. And, and like my business right now, my speaking business disappeared. It has vaporized. I mean, I've had massive, massive amounts of money lost. My talks have been canceled, but I'm pivoting. I'm doing, in two days, we're launching a new concept, virtual live uh, interactive keynotes and workshops to the biggest companies um, in the United States and abroad. And I can do the same business that I'm doing with, you know, that I used to do with companies like, you know, Cisco, Google, but I'd have to do it in person in, in, in a big conference room. I can now do it um, online. But 
man, you got to you got to pivot, but you got to think about it first. Well, well, now what can I do? Uh, and you've got to continually try those um, new things. And it's 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 basically twenty years ago when I wrote this code, I wrote something that for me is timeless. And it's different to a goal. You know, there's a whole concept, which is a number of years old now. It's called SMART goals, mm. specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-sensitive. I like to say that the concept behind the code is aim at. It's aspirational. It's inspirational. It's moral. Your code is moral. Your code's authentic. And it's timeless. Your code is code's forever it ain't it ain't something that in three weeks time you're going to write another new code you know what you write is yours and it should be um, timeless and forever yeah um lots to chat about there um the yeah i think going back to your point around hunger one of the things funny enough that i write about in, in my book also sorry i'm going to keep doing this sorry <laughs> it's just ridiculous no, that's great it's great it's, it's awesome. ridiculous it's also, that also uh, dialogue. i'm connecting with you on that specific level it's frightening it's like I, someone copied i don't know it's weird um but uh, nah, 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 no 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 i'm kidding no but i'm saying it's like the mindset is frighteningly similar and um one of the things that i that i write about is this if you you know the difference between someone who builds a really big business versus someone who doesn't and uh, i'm not saying it's better to build a massive business but certainly the difference is hunger like you're hungry to build that thing and you're curious about getting up on a board, what's it going to feel like when I drop down on the face of Jaws or whatever the case is, you know, um, but it's hunger to do that particular exercise and activity. It's not, um, there. And also I suppose other things around belief that you can do it and having, and, you know, having the confidence to kind of, you know, go over the, the, the lip, but, um, but certainly it is about hunger. And even now with this COVID-19 story, it's, you know, you have to be hungry to pivot. You know what I mean? Like it, you have it, to, you it, have to, you know, you have to have that, you have to have that <clears throat> that elemental drive. You have to have that uh, fire, and you have to have that force, and you have to have that energy. And it's a very it's a very interesting uh, concept that still uh, psychologists are grappling with, and they've been grappling with this elemental fire and hunger for hundreds of years. Um, uh, Viktor Frankl, who, who is an amazing psychiatrist who was incarcerated at Auschwitz, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. It's one of the greatest, one of the greatest books yeah. that, that's ever been I've just written. read it. He, yeah, I, I don't know how it. many times I've, I've read it. And, and he talks about this drive is the difference between lying on your bed and giving up hope and dying or struggling through um, adversity. So, you know, you have to have this uh, fundamental drive. Some people say uh, this drive, this will is really related to, uh, to glucose. And, uh, you know, you sit down, you write your goals and you, and you wake up and, and you kind of lose the, the drive, but the drive is, is, it's not just what you're born with, but certainly what you're born with helps. Um, but this is something that you can learn by surrounding yourself with positive, uplifting people who also want to go places, who also want to um, both help you through their physical efforts and also help you uh, by example. So, it's, it's it's interesting. I do the, you know, when, when people write their codes and I don't know how many lines of codes I've read over the years, hundreds of thousands, because everyone writes 12 lines. And if I speak to 50,000 people a year, you know, you can, there's a lot of code that's been sent to me and floating out there in the, in the universe. People write amazing inspirational statements, uh, but they write two things only. And people write, I will be better, and I will make others better. So these are the two fundamental drives that people have. People want to be better, and people want to make other people better. 
So the human condition is represented by that. So if you can surround yourself with people that you can help and they can help you, it helps you rise. I like to think that my surfing career and my success was really dependent on the people I surrounded myself with at the little beach that I grew up with in Durban called the Bay of Plenty. Lots of achievers in the water, the surfers all wanted to be better. And we were, we were all continually pushing ourselves upwards. And it's like athletics or business. You're not going to succeed by yourself. You're not going to succeed in a vacuum. So try to surround yourself with, with good, positive people because they will help you ultimately in your drive to be successful and you will help them too. It's just this, this circle of sort of uh, upwards, this, this upward spiral. Athletes have heard of the downward spiral. You lose an event, you try harder, you try different equipment and you just start slipping down and down and down. But, but, but the focus should be on the, um, on the upward spiral. Mm. Um, I want to talk to you about, um, uh, you know, the, the, the point, last point you raised there around people wanting to be better and people wanting to, to make a difference. Um, where does, where does, let's start with the better piece. Where does it all start to break down in your experience? I mean, you know, everybody wants to be better. I agree with you. Um, and pretty much everybody I've had on the show has, if I ask them, I want to ask you as well at the end of the show, but uh, I kind of already know what your answer will be largely about, which is about contribution. Um, but, um, you know, I'm very much interested in how do you get someone to say they want to be better to actually becoming better? Um, and, you know, whether that's dealing with your own psychodrama or letting, you know, um, your self-imposed limitations go, uh, whatever that is, um, there needs to be a way for you to break through the status quo even or, or stereotypes. Like I had Jessica Cox on uh, the show, and if you know it, but she learned to surf in Hawaii and she doesn't have any arms. Uh, she's also the world's first uh, qualified pilot. Um, wow, she, amazing. She, she flies with her feet, Sean. It's insane. Um, and you think about someone like her who's had like born with no arms, right? Wasn't hit by a shark, like was born with no arms. Um, and you and you and she was on the Ellen Show and Guinness Book of World Records, and she's got her own foundation. You're like, holy shit! You were born with like such incredible an incredible disadvantage, and yet you achieved so much. And then you've got so, so many other people. Let's call call them Joe, who sit on the couch there. And you know, the other thing I'll say: there's lots of people sitting on the couch now because of COVID nineteen, uh, and uh, you know, workforce displacement around this thing. Just in the travel industry, there's eight hundred thousand people sitting on the couch with no north star anymore. But they know that they need to provide for themselves. Some can't do it, but they know that they, you know, to your point, they want they their will is to be better, right? But they they're sitting on the couch and they've kind of lost their motivation. Um, what would you like? What would you say to them? Like, what's your message? We, is it like I know you want to be better, but like you know, how do you get someone to truly take that next step? Okay, <clears throat> you know, you can click on LinkedIn. You can click on the web. There are a gazillion, million, trillion uh, advice sites. Everyone's going to tell you something else. Forget them all. Pick up a bloody sheet of paper. You want to get off the couch? Pick up a sheet of paper and write 12 lines. Every line beginning with our will. Don't write Simon Sinek's bullshit code. Don't write Peter Drucker's code. Don't write anyone else's code but your own. You are the only person. Don't write Anthony Robbins's code. Write your code. You're the only person who can determine your future. No one else. Just write your 12 lines. Let me tell you, I called my book The Code, The Power of Our Will. I know that in those two words, I will, it's an absolute commitment to action, to change. And no matter what's happened to you, you lost your job. I lost my job. Hey, I had hundreds of thousands well, I'm not going to tell you, but tons and tons of money just vaporize overnight. I have to support my son. I have to support my beautiful wife, our lifestyle here. But, hey, I looked and I thought, and you've got to start something new. And that's just the way of the world. And no one's going to hold your hand and baby you. And you've got to get up 
write it down where you're going to go and and just make it make it happen. Um, and the first step is writing it down, visualizing it, writing it down, and then those two words I will taking action. And your words are your path. I like to say, find your purpose, find your power, find your path, find your purpose, find your power, find your path. I have people saying, oh, what should I write? I'm going, I don't know what to write. I don't know you. Only you know who you are. Only know you. Only you know where you want to go. Just write your code, 12 lines. Yes, it's not the be-all of everything, but it's a great first step for you to write your code. It's free, and I'll tell you what, this is the most amazing part of the code. I always thought it was just these 12 lines. But the sharing part of it is wonderful. You sit down and you do it with your family. You do it with your, mm. uh, your spouse. You do it with your children. Everyone sits together at the, at the dinner table or the kitchen table, and you all together write your 12 lines. Write it in 20 minutes. 12 lines, every line begins with how well. And then you stand up and you share it. Your son... Your daughter, they all read their 12 lines. Wife stands up, reads it. You stand up and read it. And it creates this amazing connectivity between people because it shows that we all have these common values. It's a way to share your love. It's a way to share your innermost feelings. And then everyone picks their best line. And you write it down and you put it up on the fridge. And if there's four of you in the family or three of you in the family, you've got these three unbelievably powerful lines and you see them every day. I mean, people have written to me, yeah, I've got the code up on, the, on my refrigerator. It's working. Yeah, I lost 50 pounds in a week. Is it 50 pounds this one woman lost <laughs> as a result of the code. Yeah, I put the code up on my, my fridge. I have a way better relationship with my eight-year-old son. All the academic research uh, we've done has been so interesting. The one person said, and it's interesting when you showed me your, your, your ink, You've got the statue of Neptune, and you've got the compass, and you've got the north, the mm. north star. And a lot of people have said, man, the code is my north star. Mm. The code is my purpose. The code is aspirational and inspirational. It's where we all um, want to travel. So when you have a plan, when you have a map, it's way easier to fight your way through that jungle to get to the other side, to get to where you want to be. And the code is not my map. It's, it's your map. It's what's, I think, the best part of the code here is the process I offer up. It's not my words. It's the process that I offer up that people can use to create their own path. Yeah, it's, um, it's a, a very pertinent book for today. And I suppose tomorrow as well, um, because, you know, after COVID-19, then what? You know, there's going to be another struggle for us to endure. Um, yeah. And, and it's the world will have changed dramatically. Mm. The world will have changed dramatically. And if there's one advice, like I'm, 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 I'm saying that I would love people who are listening here to do two things. One is write your code and share it. Uh, the code's free. I like to say it's open source code. Just you know, use the code. Twelve lines. Every line begins with "I will." Use it with your teams. Use it with your family. You know, use it with anyone and, and share it with anyone who might need it. Yeah. But never stop learning. Never ever stop learning. There's this amazing group called YPO, which is Young Presidents Organization. It's 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 a group of of, of successful business people around the world. It's a peer to peer network, and one of their core tenants. Is, is keep your saw sharp. So, so keep learning. Man, I went back to grad school uh, when I studied my master's a, few, a number of years back. I was the oldest dude in the whole university, older than the oldest lecturer, I think. But I loved it, man. It was so amazing to go out and learn again. You know what? It, it's like learning is a sign of humility. Uh, learning is, shows that you have desire. And it just makes your life so much better and, 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 and so much more enriched i found out you know all this great great new science and and and, and just made me so excited it made me like a like a kid again i felt like i was you know 20 years old starting up at the university of natal on the hill there um at, at university and it made me it made me young 
That's cool. It's um, yeah, I love this so much. Yeah, I mean, that, that just to wrap up on this particular section, you know, it's um, for me, it's like the struggle of life will never end. There's a, life's one big struggle, and then you're going to die. Um, and so, 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 how you unlock joy, fulfillment, happiness um, is through, as you describe, in, is in a code. It's having an operating system of your mind that keeps you hungry. It keeps you relevant. It keeps you action orientated. It keeps you clear. It keeps you focused. It keeps you centered, grounded, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, and it's funny because in the schooling system, it's just not taught to our kids. You know, it's like a, how, like a simple code that you can, it's free. You know, it, uh, if you do these 12 things every day and you think about these things every day, you'll have a higher probability of success than, than if you didn't. Right. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's fascinating yeah. to me why it's not fucking taught. It's like, it's like, come on, you know? Yeah, it should be. I mean, I, 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 when I go around to schools and I do these school tours, I did this incredible school tour in South Africa, 60,000 students, I think 35 schools, you know, from the very poorest schools in, you know, Kai Litcher and Katlahong uh, uh, um, to, to, you know, like the Michael Houses and Kersneys and, and, and Hiltons. Um, and to see these young kids um, think about it and, and then hear their powerful statements. We, we did a, I did a school in Katlahong, very, very poor, poor school. Uh, it was a tour I did with Liberty. Liberty funded the tour, and, and um, Pan McMillan was the publisher of, of the book. And uh, this young girl, uh, no money, nothing. These kids got nothing, you know. Um, and they interviewed her, and afterwards, I didn't see it, and TV camera, and she stands there, and she goes, I will take charge of my life. So potent, and 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 this one young young guy must have been about sixteen years old. Um, I will not be a victim. I will be in control of my life. Um, and it was amazing to see how this little tool had had helped them um, powerful forward, power forward. You know, it it helped. Give them a little bit of um, of extra motivation, mm. and that's all the tool is. It just can give you a little bit, a little bit extra. But you know, I, I competed hardcore for sixteen years. Let me tell you, every heat I competed in, I gave it everything. I never came in with, well, I could have done more, or I should have, would have, could have. I was like full on, one hundred percent of the time. When I was in the water, I wanted to win. Um, every single, every single heat. And I would read, and I, would, you know, spend a lot of time. I would have loved, loved it all, and always looking for that little extra edge. Because the difference between winning and losing, man, it's millimeters. Mm. It's not a chasm; it's millimeters. And perhaps if this little code can be a one millimeter difference for someone, man, I'll be stoked. And that's all it can be. It can be a little bit of a difference. And, and I'm saying to people, use it. It's free. Why not? Why not just invest 20 minutes in yourself? Invest 20 minutes in yourself. Write your code and share it. Write your code and share it. 12 lines. Every line begins with, I will. It has amazing uh, impact and it has amazing power and it, and it, and it could help. And I'll I'll absolutely and unequivocally state, and I will promise that it won't hurt. <laughs> uh, you're a funny guy, Sean Thompson. Who's who's in the back there? Who's that? Come here, baby. This is my beautiful son, Luke, and he's got a little. This is Luke, Hello, my mate. beautiful boy, who who's wearing. He is such. He's just been. He's at school now because school is now done by home. The moms, the, the teachers, so it's a whole new way of doing things. Hey, Luke, and Luke had a great day yesterday helping with his chores at home, doing his doing his school stuff, connecting with his mates. It's a whole new way of doing school, eh, boy? And Luke, my son, and Carla's son, he's the biggest cuddler in the whole world. He's an expert. <laughs> What's he saying? Not long, but. 
What's he saying? Oh, okay. Um, yeah. yeah, Luke, nice to meet you, Luke. Welcome to the Map Round Show. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, I, you know, I've got two young kids just to wrap up now, Sean. Um, I've got two young kids. How and, old are they? Uh, they're five and two, eh? They, um, awesome. Yeah, the hardest job in the world is a parent because um, there is no code for that one. And there's no, yeah, it's not like we study. We don't study. There was never, ever a lesson about how to be a better parent, ever. Yeah. The fundamental role in our lives, we don't get taught one thing at school, at university, nothing. Mm. It's, um, yeah, parent, being a parent is the equivalent for me of literally going out and trying to pedal into jaws. <laughs> Because there's never like every every move you make, it's you know you're probably not going to make it. <laughs> you yeah. know, you might make it, but it's just like some most of the time you don't. But you get better at it, like anything, really. Um, and so anyway, talking about uh, the kids and that, you know, it's um, it's uh, I think to your point, the world, with especially now with COVID nineteen, I think we're certainly entering. Uh, a phase of of human existence that uh, you know fundamentally will change as, as forever. It's business unusual for a long time from now, um, and um, you know I, I do think a lot about the world that um, kids will inherit. Um, and one of the greatest um, challenges for me as a parent, and I'm sure you'll resonate with this um, or see yourself in this, is that you want to empower them with the the right tool set. You know, um, and um, if they are, and I've and I know loads of people listening to the show will have kids of their own they'll be parents or whatever and um and um and i want to kind of just wrap up with two more things then the second uh, last question is what is your advice to parents around empowering them uh, empowering kids today if you think about COVID 19 and just the you know the only certainty is uncertainty today um and you know when, when you have to like you know kids are going to walk down the, the driveway one last time what how does what when you when you think about that idea and you visualize that um how does a parent approach preparing a child um using the these kinds of principles or codes um and how do you make it tangible for them because it's a, something that you don't want to start teaching when they're like 16 necessarily i suppose at any point it's a good point but you want to kind of get the fundamentals in there because their brains are like mini computers right um so you want to kind of get like yeah. the the open source code in there like from fucking very early on uh, because that's when it matters, you know, where does one start with that? What's your experience there? Yeah, I think the, 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 one of the most valuable things we can give our, our children is our time. And, you know, we're so busy. Our lives are so connected, but sometimes we, we get disconnected from the things that are most important. You know, I'm sitting in front of my computer and I'm writing an article or working on a deal and and Luke comes in and, Dada, let's play. Uh, it's like, uh, and, and I think it's, let's play. That's more important right then. Mm. So sometimes you just got to put it down and you got to play. You got to give, give your child your time, because that's the most important asset that, that, that you have and that you can, you can give them. And it's short. My son's 10 now. Your son's what, two and five. Your children are two and five. So, you know, you've got to, you got to make the commitment to give the time, even though it might be um, not the most convenient. Mm. Um, and like our lives have, have changed like hundreds of millions of others around the world. We're now playing in the garden together. We're playing hide and seek. We're playing soccer. We're playing board games. And it's like unbelievable. It's so cool Mm. to, to like be connecting uh, as a family at this deeply spiritual level. So, so give the time in my my first book surface code and in, and in the code, I, I talk about this amazing moment that I had with my son, Matthew on the beach, um, and he said, uh, it was just me and him on the beach, no one else. And he said, Dad, help me do this. And he started to collect stones from the beach, and he created the circle of stones on the beach, just the two of us on, on our local beach. And then inside that circle, he made a second circle, and then he made a third circle. So three concentric circles of stones in the sand and put two large boulders down in the middle and, and 
grabbed a piece of driftwood stick on the beach and put some kelp and feathers. And he came back to, to me and he said, Dada, this is a sacred story circle. And we're going to sit inside the sacred story circle. And we're going to tell each other stories. There's just one rule. Whoever's got the stick tells the story. And then, of course, whoever hasn't got the stick listens. So we sat inside and passed the stick back and forth and told each other stories. And out of all the times I've spent on the beaches in the world, that was the best time ever. I never had to catch a wave or win a contest. It was just like with my son and I, and it was just incredible, intense, eye-to-eye, heart-to-heart human connection. And those moments like that are rare. They're rare because we make them rare because we don't devote the time to that. Mm. And just being at dinner or just having that time with your child, connecting, whether it's in a sacred story circle or you make your own sacred story circle, or you just connect are, are like really what what makes life living, that exchanging of love. Um, and, and that's the one thing I think a parent can do, give the time and connect. And the second thing is, as parent, we need to choose our children's friends. We need to be the arbiters of who our children are friends with. Because the right friend can uplift them and take them down a wonderful path, and the wrong friend can depress them and take them down a dark path. Now, I know from experience that I lost my wife and I lost our beautiful son, Matthew, to playing a dangerous game. And he learned about the game at school. Didn't learn about it from me or Carla. And so you need to be 1,000 million percent on it as to who your children are friends with. And don't let them be friends with bad kids because Mm. you have that control until they're about 13 or so. So put them on the path. And yes, for us, we should have been more maybe forceful or I, I, I don't know. You know, we, I've, you know, we've both forgiven our son for playing the dangerous game ourselves for, for maybe we should have just been more aware. I don't know. I don't know. Life is, life is hard, hard that way. But, but as part of the healing process, you have to be absolutely unequivocally, unequivocally forgiving of yourself and, forgiving of others, but choose your children's friends. Yeah, that's a a great point. I learned that lesson on the second one there about choosing um, uh, my kid, my oldest kid's um, uh, friends as one kid. Also, older than him, learns a game at school called uh, the privacy game. And um, let's just say um, we didn't see what we needed to see until it was almost too late. We caught it in time. Um, but, um, it's, it's like you again, but then, you know, you also, I also, I was like, you blame yourself. You, you kind of, why didn't I see that before? Or whatever. Anyway, long story short, you, you know, we've kind of dealt with it now as a family and everything's okay. But, um, one of the things that I was like, I was like, well, this kid can get fucked. There's no ways Frank, you know, my kid's ever hanging out with this boy again. Um, because he's bad. He's quintessentially bad. Like I believe like you can't teach energy in a child. Like they, yeah. there's something, sometimes, you know, sometimes it's like that. Yeah. So, um, so Sean, let's wrap this up. Um, why do you do all of this rad stuff? I mean, you're a world champion surfer. You like instrumental in making surfing an, an actual thing. You've got an incredible legacy. You consult to businesses all around the world. You talk, you know, 60,000 kids at schools, you travel, you, you know, and, and, and like, why do you do all of this? Like what gets you out of bed in the morning? Why don't you just go, <laughs> why don't you just go surf? Catch a wave. Keep it simple. I love, uh, I love what I do. Um, when uh, my wife and I lost our beautiful uh, boy Matthew, um, and I started helping people, and I really got onto this role of um, of leadership and helping people find their path. It helped me with my healing process. So helping others helps me tremendously, tremendously. Um, and yes, that's one of the motivations. You help people, you help yourself. I found that um, the donor gets way more than the recipient. 
Uh, so it really helps me with my, my healing process. And also, you know, I love the challenge. I love like trying new things, pushing myself. It's like I'm still, uh, like when I was a pro surfer, I always wanted to push the boundaries, always wanted to, every wave I ever caught, I wanted to surf it. Uh, even until a couple of years ago, I wanted to surf it as good as I could, absolutely put everything into it. I'm a little bit more chilled now when I surf, but still in sort of the business social environment, I still want to want to push it. I want to make a difference. Um, I want to create something special. I've got a whole lot of new things I want to work on. Uh, still, you know, I still feel like young and energized and, and wanting to, to push things. Mm. And I don't know, I don't know what it is. It's, it's, um, you know, many years ago, I started a company called Instinct, and it was a very popular brand in 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 South Africa in the um, in the eighties. Uh, you said you were born in seventy nine. Yeah, were you born? Yeah, seventy nine. Yeah, yeah. So you would have been familiar with in- Instinct. A lot of a lot of uh, it was a very popular brand in South Africa, and I called it Instinct because the best moments in surfing are when you're riding inside the tube. That's what I was sort of known for. And surfing and the best tubes happen when you're operating on instinct. So I just do have this instinct to be better and to make others better. That's kind of my instinct. <laughs> and I just follow that. Follow that instinct. <laughs> uh, well, one of my instincts is to get barreled. So when I come over to Santa Barbara, uh, when all this malarkey around us calms the fuck down, uh, I'm going to look you up and then I'm going to humbly request that you sure, come teach me sure, where to man. go and it's get barreled. Great, great conversation, man. I'm really, really, really classic to connect with people who, um, you know, on the same path. There's a lot, a lot of, a lot of us on that same mm. path of, of wanting to help ourselves and mm. help others and, through that help ourselves and help others and it's just this sort of upward upward spiral of power i know it's amazing eh? it's amazing do more guys contribute more trust me when you give it away you're the one that benefits the most totally sean thompson everybody thanks so much sean it's been a privilege and honor buddy to have you on the show awesome likewise matt thanks and good luck with the journey eh? thanks dude cheers, cheers. stay safe eh? cheers ciao Thanks for listening to the Matt Brown Show, guys. Don't forget, you can catch me on all social media platforms for the latest updates, news, and a show history. So if you've been catching this on the podcast, please head on over to our YouTube channel and pound that subscribe button. It would be great to catch the video version there. And if you want a free copy of my number one Amazon bestselling book, your inner game for free right now today. You can grab that on mattbrownshow.com forward slash ebook. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an x.com.